This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Shouldn't you be at work? It's a lovely chip! Oh, it's a brilliant goal from Lord Bohinen! Still it's not away. Southgate shot. Milosevic scores. DPR could do with a bit of magic from him. Maybe this is it. It is! Andy Sinton from nothing. Brian Roy has headed for his interlead. Oh my God, Sean Chapman from 30 yards! Would you believe it? Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, it hasn't. No. Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin Will He Score? I'm Chris Goh and joining me, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And a man who would like his ashes scattered by Dave Challoner at sea, it's Michael Martin. Hello. How are we? Good. Yeah, good. Not too bad at all. Um, Jamie Carragher this week, exciting. Yeah, I've just recorded it. Also, we should say uh, we are recording this before the live show, which is on Sunday. If you're a Patreon member and have got this before Sunday or was on Sunday, if you're not a Patreon member, if you want to watch what happened when Ivo Graham faced up against Alex Brooker in our Championship Manager 97-98 tournament, it is there for you on Patreon, free to watch any time you want. I should also say on our Patreon that uh, you do get an extended version. There'll be more correspondence and more Jamie Carragher. If you've listened to this and you want more Jamie Carragher or you, or you want more emails about long throws, because that's what it's going to be, sign up to the Patreon. www.patreon.com forward slash quickly Kevin. Right. Correspondence? I'm Jim Rosenthal and this is the Electronic Postbag. You've got mail. Okay, it's it's all long throws, and I'm probably not going to get through all of it, if I'm honest with you. <laughs> People have gone mad for this subject. People matter. have gone absolutely mad for our long throw Hall of Fame. Here he is then with a the throw. This is from Craig Norman, but he speaks for a lot of people. Um, enjoy the establishment of the Long Throw Hall of Fame and couldn't agree more with the inductees. Thank you. However, 
there's a player who needs to be added, even though his throne was more of a party trick and I think was eventually banned from being used by the FA. Enter Newcastle's Steve Watson. Ooh. Just sent you the YouTube clip of him at Peter Beardsley's testimonial. Just describe what you're watching. Okay. The ball's going out for a throw-in. There's Steve Watson. He's taking a long run-up. He's right back against the advertising hoardings here. Here we go. Oh, he's done the old somersault over the ball into the... Oh, God. He's thrown that 30, 40 yards, is that? Well, yeah. I was thinking... So he does a kind of forward somersault using the ball as his his handstand and then uses that momentum to do his throw-in. Yeah. And... That arguably, beyond showboating, it actually creates a perfect kind of piston. Yeah, he's like a, he's like a trebuchet. Yeah. Like he's like a sort of medieval war device. <laughs> and rather than showing off, in fact, he's doing what Ma- Mario Malkiot could not. He's launching that a long way. Well, apparently, I I read that there was a non-league player, someone who sent it, someone sent it to us, and I can't find it now. But someone sent us a, pl- a clip of a non-league player doing this in the early nineties. But he was t- he was told he was not allowed to do it because it was ungentlemanly conduct. I think it's the most gentlemanly thing you can do. It's um, innovative. It's innovative. It's exciting. Michael, as the adult here, are you allowing Steve Watson to join the Long Throw Hall of Fame? He is inducted. Welcome, Steve Watson. Steve Watson has been inducted into the Long Throw Hall of Fame. Okay, this is from Michael Kemp Dillon. This is astonishing. I wanted to email in last week, but after your slandering of the long throw, but restrained myself. But after hearing some emails last week, I believe that this is a safe space for me to open up about the long throw nightmare I've been repeatedly having for the last decade or so. And he means nightmare as in a recurring nightmare. Growing up as I was always a very average footballer and that minimal amount of ability had managed to decline over time. However, in my arsenal was a very long throw. At my peak, I was able to throw the ball 30 to 35 metres. Wow. I'd say 90% of my assists I ever got were thanks to this. However, in some form of sick and twisted fate, this dream became a literal nightmare. Whilst others have a nightmare about being naked in public, for the past decade or so, at least once a month, I have a dream where I'm mid-match and I'm suddenly unable to throw the ball at all. (laughs) (laughs) This can consist of the ball turning into concrete and dropping out of my hands as I put the ball behind my head consistently slipping out of my hands or simply firing down into the ground in front of me for the most embarrassing result of them all the foul throw i don't know what this says about me or why i still have this dream given i've not played 11 aside for at least four years but it haunts me to this day i'm 30 and had this nightmare just last night please help michael kemp dylan wow i feel like we're adding to it as well i've um i've just googled what that means in a dream yeah Unfortunately, I think it's to do with sexual performance. So I'm really, really sorry, <laughs> oh, listener. Oh, Michael Kemp Dillon. Oh, dear. I have a recurring dream that I never used to get exam dreams, but in the last five years, I've had a recurring dream and I haven't studied for my finals, but I'm also, I'm already a comedian. <laughs> and so I don't know whether I need to bother with the rest of my degree. <laughs> and it's like this awful thing where i'm like well i've done two and a half years now but 
I mean, fuck it. I'm never going to use it, am I? And it, it's like, <laughs> yeah. I have this dream once a fortnight, probably. Wow, once a fortnight. Maybe, maybe a once lot. a month. Maybe once or twice a month. Maybe should we say? I've just, I've just googled it. I'm really sorry to say it's sexually related. <laughs> <laughs> I always used to have a recurring dream when I was a kid that I was driving a car and I didn't know how to drive a car. And I stopped having that recurring dream when I learned to drive. I used to have that exact dream as well. Really? Yeah, my nan's house. Wow. You can't drive, Michael. No, I know. But I I can drive. I don't have a license. I'd just like to clarify that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, my nan's house used to be parked on a hill and I'd have this recurring dream that I was waiting in the car with my two younger sisters for my dad and the car, the handbrake would go and it was my job to then sort of drive the car and steer us to safety. And I spoke to someone about that many years later, and they were insistent it was to do with sort of... Sexual performance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, they were insistent it was to do with uh, the sort of passing of the torch from father to son about sort of becoming uh, the man and the burden of that side of it. If I dream about football, I'm always way better than I am in real life. Like when I when I dream about football, I'm never playing with mates. I'm always in like a big game. I never dream about football. Really? Yeah. I the only dream I really remember is the university one. Which I'd always thought people who got the exam dreams were a bit bit cliched. So I'm a bit annoyed by it. You know, on the nose. Yeah, it's a bit on the nose. It's like, come on, <laughs> give it five more minutes. This <laughs> is the best I've got. Um I can't believe that we've uh, we've left the long throw uh, topic when there's so much more to say. Adam McGuigan. Hi, gents. Bit late to this, maybe, but I was walking the dog while listening to your pod and only now remember to send a story. Josh poured scorn on the art of the long throw, and I do hold my hands up to be wrong at this. This would greatly upset a friend of mine who used to play Sunday League football with around 10 years ago. Mark played right back and, when not absolutely smashing opposition to pieces with brute strength, would astonish teams with his frankly ridiculous throw that he could launch onto the pitch. Anything in the region of the halfway line would result in our striker, for a while a guy called Crouchy because of his height, resemblance and quality of touch for a big man, trotting over to stand near the keeper. While opponents worried what the hell he was doing, Mark would proceed to launch the ball at the goal like a human trebuchet, in fact, Michael. Lovely. Often resulting in an easy goal for Crouchy. We must have held some sort of record for disallowed goals where the ball went straight into the net because he could hit it so easily. It got to the point this is an astonishing detail, where teams knew what was coming and they would intentionally give away corners rather than throw in. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> Trying to usher it out for a corner rather than give away a throw in. I mean, you've got to question the goalkeeping standard if he's throwing it in from near the halfway line directly. Yeah, well, I remember the ball going in, not being allowed to go in from the throw is the kind of piece of rule knowledge that when you're 10 felt like a hugely important piece of football rule. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like one of those things where you'd be like, you do know you can't score from a throw-in. Yeah. And of course, it never comes up. I'd also file that in with that, uh, handball on the line red card. Really? That's it occupies the same space in my mind as a rule that is like enshrined in my knowledge of football. My my version of that is um, the penalty taker can't score again if it comes back off the post or the crossbar. Someone else has to take it in, in, in an yeah, open play yeah. penalty because we got knocked out of a cup final for that same reason, under 12s, and it's haunted me ever since. <laughs> like, why aren't people running in to get the deflection or the rebound? 
(laughs) Still angry, still having the nightmares about it. That's what the car represents. If you've got any of those um, rules that you felt were really like distinctive rules when you were a kid, but now seem very minor. The other one that always baffles me, we had an email about this. I'm sorry, I can't pluck the name out of who sent it. But um, we've talked a lot about the disallowed goals during Italia 90, uh, particularly the semi-final disallowed goal. Uh, which may or may not have been offside for England. Stuart Pearce scored an indirect free kick against Holland. A, indirect free kicks felt like such a bigger yes. thing. Yes. yes. They really did feel like a bigger thing. And B, how are you at that level scoring an indirect free kick? How are you not <laughs> aware that it's an indirect free? Are you going for the deflection? I mean, that's a, that's a <laughs> hell of a choice. I'm going to deflect this in. You're like, like a kind of Stephen Hendry style, like a plant. <laughs> you, um, there was an article this week in The Guardian, I can't remember, maybe it was Daniel Taylor who wrote about it, about um, like the back pass rule and like indirect free kicks in the box. And like, no, it's Daniel Gray. He, 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 so he writes these great books, which because uh, he works for On Saturday Comes and he interviewed me for their podcast. It's a very good podcast. And I'd say similar wheelhouse. If you're into this, you will like that. There's a lot of, you know, frippery about old football but um he's written a book about 50 great things that he loves about the modern game and you read what which was the one you read skull indirect free kicks in the box as a result of a back pass um and just the absolute chaos that would happen and i think he made the point in the book that managers never train you don't rehearse what would happen or practice what's going to happen if you have to take an indirect free kick like if the opposition's got an indirect free kick in the box so it's just like it is just total lunacy and chaos. Like 11 people on the line and you're all just charging yeah. out and you can't even even get like 10 yards away sometimes. And there's a brilliant bit in that article where he talks about when the bat pass rule was brought in and people would discuss whether they'd seen one of these happen yet. Like it felt like such a kind of rare thing. I think yeah. Alan Shearer scored one for England once. Yeah, because like Moldova or someone. Yeah, and he just rifles it into the top. I mean, that's that's what happens when you have an indirect free kick in the box. You've just got to whack it. Rifles it off and someone's going to absolutely clobber it and just see what happens. It's like a pinball machine. Yeah, I scored the, the only goal. The only goal that counts in my entire football career was scored from an indirect free kick, a pass back in, in the box. And it went off four different players before it went in, so I couldn't even claim it. <laughs> But we, we were playing, I think it must have been like under 12s or under 13s, sort of not long after the rule had been introduced. So no one was kind of getting to grips with it properly yet. And, you know, keepers were still picking it up and managers were like, no, no, don't pick it up. But we were winning three or four nil. And they thought as a joke, they were like, Michael, you, you come and take it. You come and take it. Sort of like wheeling out the player that was <laughs> never famously going to score. And I still today, when I bump into the people that I sort of grew up with, they'll joke about the fact that I couldn't even score that goal. It was just sort of an own goal four times over before it went in. I, te- I tell you what I'd love uh, the Quickly Kevin Hive mind to do. Can we find the closest indirect free kick as a, as a result of a back pass to the, go- to the goal line? Like, What was the, like, the one that was closest and like most chaotic? I'd love to see that. Do you think whacking it is worth it? Because you're either going to hit someone or you're not. The power's not going to make any difference from that range right yeah well that shearer one in that's burned into my retina somehow he just he goes for height doesn't he like they peel it back to him and he just he hits it high that's got to be your tactics isn't it particularly peter schmeichel's in goal i wonder (laughs) if you could lob him from an indirect free kick in the area (laughs) i mean how did you manage to bring that round to peter schmeichel (laughs) (laughs) lovely turn of events um that's all we've got on the long throws 
for now. There's more will be coming next week. Do keep it coming in. For Patreon members, there's a couple more pieces of correspondence. Otherwise, it's the 90s o'clock news. From the headquarters of ITN, News at 10, with Chris Scull. Uri Geller takes credit for Scotland's qualification at Euro 2021. Paul Walsh reports another death. <laughs> and listener finds 90s football results under the floorboards. I can I just say, in the history of the 90s o'clock news, what, six weeks, um, I've never been so sure about what the headline will be before it starts. <laughs> <laughs> so, big news this week. Yuri Geller has taken credit for Scotland beating Serbia 5-4 on penalties. He put a clip on his Twitter showing him using his psychic powers holding a Scotland shirt up to the camera as uh, Scotland saved the Serbian penalty and qualified for Euro 2021. And then he said, I, I, I believe in my powers. Well done, Scotland. And then he went on to say that he's invited the whole of Scotland to his private Scottish island. So I don't know if you've seen his island. I think it's called uh, I think it's called Lamb. Yeah, Lamb Island. Right. This island, I, I will put a picture of it on our Twitter and our Instagram. It may not come up on any maps because it is tiny. I'm talking. It looks like 50 square meters. Yuri Geller, come on, he's he's clearly sky plus this. Yeah, well, he he did it 25 minutes after. Oh, did he? So <laughs> yeah, he put the tweet up 25 minutes after come the on. penalty. I mean, that's not proving anything at all. It's absolutely <laughs> absurd. As well, like he says in the clip, he goes, "This is direct quote. Yes, yes, yes. I love you, Scotland. We did it. Like we." Really? Unbelievable. Come on, I just want to see a series of Yuri Geller with old events, but replayed on his TV as if he's just got footage of him <laughs> affecting them. I'd happily watch a history of football with Yuri Geller in front, claiming every great moment in the history of football. Well, you know, so Yuri Geller bought this island for £30,000 in 2009 because he believed it had links, this island, to the pyramids at Giza. And in 2010, he... he camped on the island to start looking for ancient artefacts that he thought would had been left by Tutankhamun's sister. And the way he went about looking for these arts, ancient artefacts, and this is a direct quote from an article on Edinburgh Live, is that he used a Y-shaped twig to douse for treasure. I mean, <laughs> come on. He's a chancer. I'm going to call it. <laughs> Absolute chancer. Well, look, let's go on to our second big news story this week. And thank you to David Rose, who emailed this in. Obviously, we were all very saddened to learn of the death of Eric Hall recently, but no one was sadder than, of course, Paul Walsh. Do you want to hear something weird? Yeah. That This is how I've heard about the death of Eric Hall. Oh, really? Well, oh, that's very sad, isn't I it? I know, and he was on our list of, of guests we wanted to get, sadly. But So Sky News had, um, had written an article about the, the sad passing of Eric Hall, and we, I was chatting to Michael about this. Sometimes something will happen in the world of football, and, it, and you'll think... Has the person involved in media who's written this article or done this piece of content, are they doing a little nod towards us? Because in the article for Sky News that that mentions the death of Eric Hall, the kind of obituary, the first comment from the world of football that is added to the obituary is from Paul Walsh. Oh, wow. Very sad to hear of the passing of Monster Monster Eric Hall, a real character. My thoughts are with the family Monster R.O.P. to Eric. So Paul Walsh is now the go-to person. He's created <laughs> he's a, a fantastic he's niche a for himself. in chief. <laughs> Mourner in chief of the football world, Paul Walsh. Oh wow, it's working for him. Right. Um, what's the last story, Paul? Uh, what's the last? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Last story. A listener has found some 90s football results under the floorboards. Thank you to uh, Jeff Kenner League on uh, Twitter who sent this to us. So his mate's digging up his floorboards, found a load of football results on a newspaper underneath. Can you guess the date? I thought this might be a bit of fun. Oh, yeah. So here are the results. What do you mean he's found them? Well, like in a, on a newspaper. Yeah, in a newspaper. Oh, like, right. so I'm going to read you some of the results of some of those goal scorers. See if you can get the year. So Arsenal two, Chelsea one. Goals from Paul Merson and Ian Wright. Uh, Dennis Wise got the consolation for Chelsea. That that is that is three very broad scorers yeah. that are going to help you. Okay. Well, well, what what about this one? This is the Premier League. So Blackburn seven, Norwich Ooh. one. Goals Ooh. for Blackburn come from Wegerly two. Sherwood, Shearer, Cowens, and Ripley on the score sheet there. Um, I, I, so I'm going to go with that. It's it's post Alan. Who scored for Norwich? Newman. I think that that so we, the fact Wegerly is playing as opposed to like Chris Sutton. Yeah, and the fact Gordon Cowens is playing would hint that it's post Shearer signing, obviously, but pre Chris Sutton. So I think it's going to be about 1993 or four. What do you think, Michael? Michael, uh, I was going to say 94. I'll go 93 then. You haven't got it. Fancy <gasps> another guess? Oh, 92. 3rd of October, 1992. They're the fixtures. Wow. wow. Amazing little find under the floorboards. Yeah. I loved the night o'clock news. If you have anything on long throws or other correspondence, we're not just a long throw show now, uh, or anything on the 90s o'clock news, this is how to get in touch. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at QuicklyKevin and sign up to the mailing list at QuicklyKevin.com. So this is Jamie Carragher and if you want to hear Jamie Carragher discuss his pick for the best England manager of the 90s, get yourself over to the Patreon for an extended listen of this episode. What is great about that answer is he gives an astonishing detail about playing for England later that includes this manager that is genuinely a kind of heartbreaking story on the powers of management. This is, we're not going to call him football, we're going to call him 90s football fan, Jamie Carragher. Our guest this week is a bootle boy who grew up to become a European champion, a Liverpool and England legend, but most importantly for us, a 90s football aficionado. Please welcome to Quickly Kevin, Jamie Carragher. Thank you. How are you, Jamie? I'm very good. It's, uh, it's nice to be here. Went quite smoothly, that, didn't it? It was, yeah, I mean, we've, we've edited out 15 minutes of us uh, struggling technologically. You're better with technology than Trevor Stephen, but not as good as Neville Southall. I don't know how you feel about that. <laughs> well, two of my heroes then. Certainly one, uh, I'm not sure if Trevor just made the 90s or he frigged off to Rangers from Everton at the time, but certainly Neville was a big uh, 90s footballer I watched. Yeah, well, look, we want to wind back the clock with this interview and ask you about your early days supporting Everton. You've written an amazing book uh, on the 11 greatest games that, that you've kind of lived through. But I wanted to start a lot with the time when we speak to uh, former players. We say to them, we ask them a question around, can you remember the shirt sponsors you had in the 90s? But as a boyhood Everton fan, Jamie, can you remember Everton's three kit sponsors, shirt sponsors from the 90s? Well, I remember one one to one. Yeah, that's yes. one. Yeah, because uh, all Liverpool fans said it was gone to one because never were nearly getting relegated every season uh, <laughs> at that time. Uh, can't have been NEC. No, it was NEC. Till nineteen ninety-five. Was it? 
Yeah. And was it Danka? Oh, yes. full house. Well done, Jamie. That bodes well. So, this is a nostalgia podcast. You've written about the 11 greatest games, or your favourite 11 greatest games. Now, we basically we talk about nostalgia and football, but we don't actually go back and fact-check the memories. What was it like to go back and rewatch these games? Were they as remembered? Well, I always think a lot of footballers don't uh, look back on games because they always worry that it's never as good as they think it was or how they played. So I think a lot of people sort of, you know, even supporters as well, really. You know, your great memories, when you look back, it's never possibly exactly how you think. And a lot of the games were similar like that, really, in, in some ways. And I think a very famous one was England-Holland for one at Wembley about how England dismantled the Dutch and how they played. And really, when you watch it, it's not really like that at all. No. England just have a mad 15-minute spell where they score. Two of them, one of them's from a set-piece, one's from a seaman long ball. You know, there's one great goal, <laughs> don't get me wrong, but uh, the Dutch don't play particularly poorly with the ball in the first half. Uh, another one was the Man United game, actually, and I'd only ever watched it once. You know, the, the night it happened, and that was enough for me when they won uh, the <laughs> five unit. But uh, watching it back, uh, I actually think uh, they did deserve to win, and uh, Bayern Munich only had themselves to blame, really. You know, watching watching that game back. So, hopefully, a few Man United uh, fans will buy the book on the fact that chapter <laughs> is in there and what I've just said. <laughs> Um, is, there a, there, is there a 10 Greatest Games book that's available on Merseyside? For people that yeah, that exactly. <laughs> so you started supporting Everton in 84, 85, I've read, and you went to a lot of games home and away. And I mean, what a first season to start supporting Everton. You finished champions. You go, we went on an amazing Cup Winners' Cup run. You ended up winning it. But you pick from that run the semi-final against um, Bayern Munich. And you'd been to the away leg. And I read in the book that you'd met a lot of these players of that era. What were they like? Were they nice to you? Who was like most generous with their time? Well, well, they were. I mean, and this, don't forget, this this was the days of, you know, players and enjoying themselves at different times. And I think on the back of a good result on the on the Wednesday night, I think the game would have been, I think my dad uh, ends up maybe going for a couple of drinks with some of the players afterwards. And he the, the found out where the hotel was, where the players were in. So I went to... Uh, I went there the following morning as the Everton team were leaving. So they didn't fly straight back. They stayed overnight. How old would you have been at this time, Jamie? I would have been, well, what would I have been, seven? Oh, seven wow. Or eight. Yeah, so uh, I, I just went into the, the foyer of the uh, the hotel as the lads were leaving. And uh, I remember Kevin Ratcliffe giving me an, uh, a magazine, and uh, like an Everton magazine thing, and I got all the players to sign it. And uh, I always remember the bus taking off from the hotel and stopping about 20 yards down the road. And uh, John Bailey shouted at me. I, I was outside, sort of waving them off. And he just gave me a can of Coke. You know, just these things <laughs> that you remember. <laughs> uh, so that was the, more, the morning after. And, you know, Evan would have played someone at, at the weekend. But it was just one of those things that I always, uh, you know, you, you always remember those times. And uh, I think my dad thought he'd done his duty in terms of taking me to Europe because... There was no way I was going to get in the way of his big party, which was going to be the final in Rapid Vienna uh, oh, in right. Rotterdam. So I never actually went to the final. I watched that at home. I think that was a, that was an excuse. and uh, <laughs> Not an excuse. A good reason after following Everton through the 70s to really go on the ale for a few days and try <laughs> to really uh, save it. And there was no place for an, a seven-year-old kid from Google. <laughs> What's it like doing like a wait As a seven-year-old, doing an away trip to... Munich that must have been an amazing experience I suppose you don't realize how kind of lucky you are to be doing that at the time it just felt normal yeah I mean it, well this Liverpool supporters have done that 
for years it, it hadn't really been a thing for Everton but I mean it was the first time I'd been on a plane I'd been on a plane before me mum me mum hadn't even been on a plane when I went to Bayern Munich <laughs> I think we went to Spain about 12 months later and that was the first time she'd been on a plane so as a seven-year-old kid I'd been on a plane before me mother so uh, that was something to be proud of I think and no it was it was it was I always remember it was uh, one of my dad's mates only got the call at the last minute that there was space on the plane and come just tearing through the airport to make it. But the thing I remember most about the game, it was two things. It was not the actual game. I can't remember anything in the game. It was Munich Stadium. It was the old Olympic Stadium. And they had a moat. Oh. I'd never seen nothing like that in, in, had a in the first division. Yeah, oh, you couldn't get on that pitch. <laughs> no <laughs> chance. You know, about a 20-foot drop uh, from the fence. And coming out the game at the time, if you remember mid-80s, it was well, certainly Everton Liverpool. It was it was bobble hats that people all wore the game. Yeah, and I was on my uh, my dad's shoulders coming out the game, and someone just took my my hat and w- whipped it off me. And uh, I just went, oh my hat, and uh, my dad's mate just grabbed this by a Munich supporter by the throat. <laughs> <laughs> Where's this fucking hat? And uh, I was thousands everywhere. So but the hat was gone. <laughs> How old were you when you first went to a game at presumably at Goodison Park, your first game? My first memory of football is the 84 Cup final, watching that on TV. Mm. And the first game I remember going to was uh, the first game of that season, which Tottenham won 4-1 at Goodison. And they were Everton's big rivals for the title that season. Mm. And they uh, battered Everton 4-1 in the first game. And uh, another memory from that game is meeting Harry Cross from Brookside, if you remember him. <laughs> I remember them all, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> So at this moment, I'm remembering more around the football, around what was happening on the pitch. Yeah. But that, that's my first memory of going to an Everton game and, and seeing Everton lose a four-one to Tottenham. But it ended up being an, obviously an unbelievable season. I remember going to Leicester. It was a very famous away game that season where Andy Gray scored two goals and Everton come back from one 0 down. I was at that game. I went to. I remember going to Stoke. What was Sheffield. that ground like in those days? Well, Stoke were a terrible team that season. I think they finished. This come up in something I done last week. I think. In a 42-game season, I'm sure Stoke had 17 points. That's just that number just comes to me. And they were the worst team in the league by a mile. Uh, Everton won their 2-0. I mean, Birmingham was always somewhere you'd go. Nottingham, Notts Forest. Uh, we actually went to Ipswich. I mean, what a journey that was. And so, was your dad driving you there? Or were you going on like, not a supporters That was the train. I remember waking up early and it was, they didn't know whether the game was going to be on or off. And there was a pitch inspection at 12 o'clock. Mm. But obviously, to go to Ipswich, you've got to leave at like seven in the morning. It's miles away. I remember on the train, we'd be speaking to a couple of, you know, a few Everton fans. And my dad said, that's a really famous Everton fan. A fella called Eddie Cavana. And he was the guy who'd run on the pitch in 1966 and been oh, yeah. by a policeman. I him, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, he was on the train. So, uh, yeah, you really have met them all, Jamie. <laughs> oh, yeah, we've met them all. We've met all the villains, don't worry. I can't believe all the name drops we're getting in here. Incredible. Harry Cross and Eddie Cavana. <laughs> this is proper nostalgia, this. <laughs> so you're on the way to Ipswich, you meet Eddie Cavana. And then, so was the game on or was it? Yeah, the game ended up being on and it was uh, it was around Christmas time. And it was, I think we just made a, uh, no one else would have seen us, but we knew where we were standing. And uh, it was one of them where me and we were taping all the match of the days. Or yeah. just the Everton bit, because whoever was top of the league was on match of the day every week then. And it was, I think there was only two games they'd put on. So you sort of had this run of games of, of Everton on match of the day. So I think we just we, we caught ourselves on the, one of the shots. Uh, but no, it was, uh, it was just an unbelievable season, really. And there was just one thing I always remember about the season was 
it's not like now where everyone's on the phones, everyone knows, you didn't really know the score of the other teams till the end of the game, really. And I just, I always remember running out and there was a betting shop right by the Gladys Street and you just run in there after every game and every game was Saturday, three o'clock and you just run in there about 10 to five and you'd be, how did Tottenham get on? How did Tottenham get on? You were obsessed with Tottenham the way yeah. Liverpool and City are obsessed with each other's results now, but you, you never knew. And if someone would be like, oh, you, you know, someone like just, Big, you know, side, you know, devastated, really. But that, that's what it was. That was the big rivalry that season. Yeah. 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 What was it like as a seven-year-old on the t- terraces and stuff? Were you, could you see? Like, what, were you, what was the experience like? To, were you on your dad's shoulders? Yeah, at times. I mean, to be honest, in the, on the, when we went to the Everton games, we went to, uh, we were in the Gladys Street, but the Gladys Street upper was all seat. Mm. It's, it's still, I mean, it's still the same stadium now. So the, the famous sort of Everton end, you know, there's a, there's a seating area above that. So it was a great position to actually watch as a kid. There, the away games, you could be anywhere and you just work your way down to the front. But when you're actually thinking about how you're actually watching football, yeah. you know, through a fence, it, it, it's unbelievable, really. I mean, obviously, all the bigger men could stand back and the fence didn't get in the way. But, you know, young kids watching football, we all sort of trying to look through. Offense. Going back to this, the um, so the second leg of the Cup Winners' Cup semi-final, the, one of your greatest games, you win three-one. But uh, we wanted, to, I wanted to ask you about the, the the turning point is Everton win off the back of a couple of long throws, and Andy Gray seems to have a bit of chip on his shoulder about this. I wondered where where do you stand on long throws? Is there a right way to score a goal or a wrong way? Where, where do you stand? No, I've got no no problem with it. There's no doubt that uh, you associate long throws with Wimbledon. You know, Vinnie Jones, remember all those years ago, running and throwing the ball in and fashioning in the box. And it was almost a, a thing that the top clubs sort of looked at and turned their noses up at, and we don't do that. But what I would say is that, and when I'm analysing that game, is just little things that pop up. By Munich are attacking in the first half at the Gladys Street end, and they face throw-ins a long throw. You know, just that's why I want to, you know, just like, I love the real detail in football. Yeah. So, yeah, this is the great Bayern Munich German team. They play a certain way. They were no angels then. There's no doubt yeah. Everton absolutely battered them in terms of, you know, physicality on the pitch. Andy Gray kicked one of the defenders up the arse in the first, you know, first half. But Bayern Munich, you know, the Arwin Tyler at the back, uh, Dieter Hainis up front, who got the goal. So, they had some big units in there. And as I said, that first coming for them went, went straight into the box. But that's the way... That Everton team was. There's possibly been other teams who played more silkier football. At times, they played unbelievable football. You think of the Sunderland game, at home, very famous game. The football he played in that game, but uh, but they could mix it, and they had two big centre forwards. So get it into them, yeah. And you're right. I spoke to Andy Gray for the chapter, and he uh, he don't like that getting mentioned. He <laughs> <laughs> seemed that way. And Neville Neville Southall. He, every time he got the ball in his hands, he kicked it long. <laughs> I, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was writing that down when I was watching it one, two. So he, the days of actually throwing it out now and giving it to an, a centre-back in the six-yard box, they were, uh, they were obviously 30, 40 years away. A splendid goalless draw was etched out in the Olympic Stadium in Munich to set up a winner-takes-all second leg a fortnight later. It was arguably Goodison Park's greatest ever night. Is onside and clean in at Neville Southall. And Hernes off the goalkeeper. There are two on the line for Everton, but Hernes finds a way past them. Gray goes in. Sharp! (laughs) 
perfect start to the second half. And Everton have recaptured the party move. Stevens with another testing long throw. Fab lost it. A goal. Andy Gray. And Fab will look back at this and wonder. It was his own players who balked him. And Andy Gray had an open goal. Onside, played onside by Nagfire and Trevor Stephen. It's settled now. Rotterdam, here they come. Tremendous piece of vision from Andy Gray and a finish to admire from Trevor Stephen. Everton simply came out for the second half rolled up their sleeves and refused to be beaten they're through to their first European final Andy Gray's crucial goal the second of Everton's three and the unique treble is very much on at the expense of the similar ambitions of Bayern Munich just to say, like you mentioned the aggression of that Everton team, like players like Peter Reid, and I guess in your early days you were known for being quite an aggressive player yourself. How Why much did throughout your career? But how much did that Everton kind of they love to mix it, that aggression? How much did it make its mark on you when you came to be a footballer yourself? Huge it was. I mean, and it's not just Everton, it's it's your upbringing, me dad, the people of Liverpool, you know. Liverpool people are naturally like that, you know, on the front foot, aggressive in the nicest possible sense. But, you know, <laughs> I'd like to think, you know, they've got something about them. You know, they're not shy. And uh, I think football clubs should represent the people. And I think Everton are always at the best when they play that type of football. I know the game's changed. But I think Everton football clubs always got to have an element of the opposition thinking, oh, I don't want to go to Goodison. You know, you've, you've got to have that fear. And whenever they've ever been at the best, they've had that. The mid-80s, you think of Joe Royal in the mid-90s, uh, the Dogs of War. I think David Moyes' teams, when they were at the best as well, it was one of those games where, yes, they could play decent football at times, but the, the ball would be in the box for Fellaini. And I, I, I just think any Everton team has got to have an element of that. It's slightly different at Liverpool, where similar, but Liverpool will naturally attract a better quality of player because you spend more money in a bigger club and can play it you know, slightly different uh, brand of football. But I certainly think both clubs should and do when they're at the best represent, you know, the people of the city. And, and what you've just mentioned, I think, is that. So it's interesting how, like, times change. You talk about Liverpool v Arsenal, the 2-0 game, and your son James what, seeing you watching it and saying, basically saying the standard was terrible. <laughs> well, or not terrible. <laughs> League One, I think, is that. Do you agree with that? Would those teams have just completely sunk if they were playing today? Has the standard changed that much? No, I, I'm not a big believer in certain players couldn't play, and you know they couldn't play now. I mean, it's a different game, but that's not because the players are all naturally better. Uh, mm. I'd say football is better. I'm not saying I'd never want to be that person who says football was better when I played, but I don't like the argument of I couldn't have played today or. 
John yeah. Barnes couldn't have played. I think the great players of any era could have played today. I mean, the football's different. I mean, the rules, the sports science, you think how much that would help those players at that time. But it was brilliant watching that game. And I'm saying to my son, John Barnes is like unbelievable. He's a god to me. He's like what Thierry Henry was in the Premier League. And my son's watching it going, what's this? But it's like, <laughs> Doesn't that break your heart a little bit? Yeah, like, it oh. does. And I'm like, these are great players, I can assure you. These are absolute legends. And uh, But listen, we should remember, I mean, there was a lot of tension uh, on that yeah. game. And there's no doubt, even when I watch games back of myself, you look back and you think, this is not football. You mean, you look at it today. And I, and I think, you know, the product that we see today, we almost take for granted that a team's going to have... 10, 15 passes, you know, trying to build up a move. Whereas in those days, it was, it didn't happen as frequently because of the way the game was, how aggressive it was, maybe the pitches as well. But it, it was an eye-opener. Certainly for me as well, I was sort of fighting the course for this, you know, late 80s game. And my son's just going, this is like second division football. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with second division football as a Plymouth <laughs> fan. It's, it's a very high standard. You also, the finale of that, you talk about, how brilliant Brian Moore is on the commentary of that. Mm. Um, is, is he your favourite commentator of your youth? Did you like have commentators and pundits, because now obviously you work in the media, that you kind of loved when you were growing up? Well, to be honest, when I was growing up, there was all, they, they were iconic figures, weren't they? It was almost like it was, it was Moxon and Barry Davis on BBC One. Brian mm. Moore was ITV, I think, with Martin Tyler. Martin Tyler actually does the, the Everton Bayern Munich game. It was just the lines that they'd come out with. Really, and I can still, if I see an old Everton goal, you know, I, I can think of one now. So I think it might have been Gerald since that. Oh, no, 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 Barry Davis, I think. So Everton score an equaliser against Ipswich in the Cup in 1985 at Goodison at uh, the Gladys Seat in the last minute. I think, was it? I think it was uh, Van der Cross to Mountfield. And just the line of the hold on the cup has been re-established. I can, as soon as I, I see that goal, and I, I know the line uh, that's going to come. And that's just the way it was for me as a kid, knowing the line of like, a commentator yeah. having watched football, you know, that much. Reed. Yes, he's made the gap. Vanden Howe. Do you remember those games as a kid more than you remember some of the games you played in your career? Like, if you've got more of a photographic memory for those early games as a kid? I mean, to be honest, I'm, I, I remember, I would say I remember 90% of the games I ever played in. Uh, other players I played with think I'm a, I'm a wee... Like, I know games Gary Neville played in, and he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he obviously, he just thinks I'm weird. Uh, but yeah, I, I can remember those games and little things that happened in games. I mean, I, I'd say, as I said, 90% of my games, I remember two or three things that happened in the game. I mean, I don't know why I do or, you know, why I just pick it up. I and mean, when I was a kid, didn't have what we had on TV now. So you'd be watching highlights all the time of those Everton games. Yeah. Uh, so you, you just memorise the, you know, the commentary. I used to read Shoot Magazine and I'd get that and... I'd read it in, you know, a couple of hours or whatever it was. But I never threw it away. I had this big stack of them. So then for the rest of the week, 
I just just pick a random one out and read it before I went to bed. So it could be like from four years ago. <laughs> I'm reading about like Brian Robson's new injury or something like that. <laughs> you know, it's like. But I just think it just helped me with sort of remembering yeah. football and, and players and things that that happened. Yeah, I was just constantly reading about did, football. Did you, when you became a footballer, were you exceptional? in that you're a big fan of it or is that well there are a lot of kind of I mean I don't want to use the word nerds Jamie but were there a lot of people (laughs) (laughs) kind of football anoraks like that if someone called me a nerd on Twitter now I'd take that as a compliment there's a lot of players on there I can assure you (laughs) Uh, no I'd say I was a little bit different to players in the dressing room in terms Mm. of my love for football and they all if I ever speak to them now or see them or something they'll say oh couldn't believe you never went to management it's almost like if you love football, you've got to become a manager. But I think I love football. So if you love football, the best place for you is not in management because you end up hating it. Yeah, That's how they all end up. I think a bit <laughs> bitter and uh, twisted really with it. But no, I mean, that's something that I think if I was involved in the game now, coaching or managing, it would frustrate me that a lot of footballers don't love the game as much as I do and don't watch as much football as I do. And I think that I'd find that uh, frustration. Um, 16 years after you went to Munich for Everton in 1985, you're back for England for one of your other greatest games, Germany 1, England 5. I wanted to ask you about, you were in the squad, Kevin Keegan's last game in charge of England, the last game at Wembley, you were in the squad when we lost 1-0 to Germany. You describe it in the book as chaos, what happened that day. I've heard a rumour that Kevin Keegan's halftime team talk when you're 1-0 down was, I'm out of ideas. But like, what, what was that? Is that true? And what was that day like for you? To be honest, I wasn't in there at halftime because I wasn't a sub. I was in the squad and I was one of the ones who hadn't been stripped. So we watched it in the stand and then you're watching it unfold. But obviously before the game, I just remember the reaction of the players around the, you know, the dining room and tables when, you know, the team was announced and everyone was just in utter shock that Gareth Southgate was playing in midfield. And I knew uh, Paul Lynch really well because we were at, you know, we were at Liverpool together. And he was like, he was he was embarrassed more than anything that he wasn't involved. So I, I, you knew before going to the game, you're thinking, it just, it just wasn't this buzz of energy yeah. of, you know, playing for England. It's the last game at Wembley. It was just a bit like, almost like he'd lost faith in the manager when he picked that team, really. And then I went down after the game. You sort of, you know, whistle goes and we get ushered down towards the tunnel area. And that's when it was just chaos. Uh, Really, and I mean, that would have been the first, well, I didn't play at Wembley, but the first time I'd been involved at Wembley with a team, because uh, it wasn't until years later with Liverpool, we, we won everything at Cardiff and Cup Finals there. I didn't really play at Wembley or do too much at Wembley, really. So I've been there as a fan, so to actually be down the tunnel around the changing area, it was almost excited, even though I was in the England squad. So it gets down there, and then all the FA people are there going in the, the dressing room, there's players in and out the showers with just towels on them and sort of just having a little word with Kevin Keegan. He's in the toilet, I think, with David Davis. And they're sort of just desperate for him to sort of uh, change his mind. England had a game, I think, three days later. I think it was Finland, I think. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. And I always remember Nick Barnby saying to me, a few pages for your book, that, in the future. And wasn't he right? <laughs> oh, Nick! Yeah. Was I? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's all that players were thinking at the time. Not Paul Kevin thinking, fucking hell, what a chapter. This is going to be in the autobiography. <laughs> Speaking of managers, you know, your dad used to be a manager, right? He was a bit of an amateur manager. Did he ever manage you yourself? Yes, he did for uh, two or three years. So I, uh, 
the first team I played for, there was no under seven, under eight football like there is now. The first age was under 11. And if you were seven, you had to play for the under 11. So that's what I did. So the manager then took that team to under 12. But I, I didn't want to keep playing, you know, four years above myself, really. So <laughs> my dad took the team the next year. So there was a few kids who were a little bit older than me. So he started a new team under 11s. And it was the same name, Merton Villa. So he took our team then, yeah, for uh, two or three years. But that was after his success as an, uh, in the men's game with the, the amateur thing. So I used to watch, when I was four or five, I'd go and watch him take a team. And uh, on the Sunday, the Merton Villa again, the men. And uh, it was just great being around those people. I think that's what helped me love football, understand football, because I was getting taken to watch Everton on a Saturday and I was watching my dad's team on a Sunday. And it wasn't just the football, it was like being in the pub before. So I, at seven years, you know, six, seven, I'm in a pub playing pool against <laughs> men, listening to men talking football. Straight after the game, you, everyone just, everything was revolved around the pub. So if you, if you go to the Everton game on a Saturday, everyone met in the pub. You go to the game, you come back to the pub, the same the next day. So, and what I mean by that is I wasn't getting uh, intoxicated at that age. No, no. That, that, that was the pub. Uh, but you used to around men talking football and listening and, and what they felt was a good player and how the game should be played. And you just hear wigging all the time, really. Yeah. Uh, and that, that was, I think, in some ways, a great upbringing for me to be around so many people who just had that passion uh, for football. But, I mean, my dad is an amateur. I mean, if you think I want to win, he wants, he, they were playing a game and uh, it was the only game that was on a lot of the other games because normally when you play, there's like, you know, 10 or 12 football pitches and they were up at a, a place called Chaffers and they were getting beat 1-0 and a team they normally beat, they couldn't beat them a cup game. So my dad asked his number two to go and break the crossbar. What? So, yeah. So he's hanging on to the, snapping the crossbar, thinking the game would get abandoned. And the referee went and got another crossbar. <laughs> so they never got away with it. And the other famous one that he always tell me about, and it actually made the local radio, playing a big cup game in Kirby. And uh, we're from Bootle, so a bit of a rivalry, Bootle and Kirby. Where Phil Thompson's from. And uh, the referee was from Bootle. So they said, we'll give him a lift. You know, get him on side before the game. So they give him a lift up there. They get beat and they fucking left him. <laughs> <laughs> winning was almost the, always the most important thing in our household and were you brilliant you were a striker when you were growing up were you most professional footballers head and shoulders above everyone they're playing with at school and at that level were you scoring tons and tons of goals yes I was I mean I played centre four because because I played with people who were older than me that almost bridged the gap in terms of ability level you know, I was playing with good players and I was, yeah, you know, stood out. But the problem was when I played in my own age group, I almost wanted to do everyone else's job. So playing up front and watching things going on in defence or midfield, it was like, no, I've got to... So whenever it was my own age, which I very rarely played, to be honest, I needed to be in midfield because I felt like I needed to be in the middle to sort everything out because, yeah. you know, I was a lot better yeah. than the ones I was playing with and against. But when I was playing like a year above and it was a good standard, like, that was it was schools football and it wasn't football club so you play for your area yeah like, we were we were from Bootle so we were Bootle boys we'd play Kirby boys we'd play Wirral boys uh, Liverpool school boys was the big one they played on a uh, Penny Lane the famous Beatles song so you'd play against them so the games were sort of quite even and I'd be centre forward and yes I uh, 
you had to score 30, 40 goals a season, would you believe? <laughs> <laughs> and what you're a huge Everton fan at this point. Um, what, who are your posters on your wall? Who are your heroes growing up? The number nine was the famous one at uh, Everton. I mean, Lineker was only there for a year, really. So mm. it was difficult to uh, love him too much because he, uh, he buggered off to Barcelona. <laughs> and, uh, and then Tony Cotty came in and it never quite happened. You thought Tony Cotty was going to be this player that would get Everton back as they were just drifting really in the late 80s. And it never quite happened for him. So I, I always think of the player I sort of watched and admired in that position would be uh, Graeme Sharp. And I still think he would make most people's uh, all-time 11s in an Everton shirt. Is it and, right that when you signed for Liverpool, Dalglish nicknamed you Sharpie? Yes. <laughs> yes. How good is that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, what happened was he was uh, he was the manager at the time for Liverpool, and I was in the school of excellence. It was called. So I had gone to Liverpool at nine, and his son was in the same group as me. But he's a year up. So again, I always played a year up. So mm. it was really good for me and helped me that. So I never got judged against my own age group, even at Liverpool. I was always judged against the the year above. So. I was classed as one of the better players in that age group, even though they were a little bit older than me. So it was it was really good for me, really, at that age. So he'd finish whatever he was doing at Liverpool. He would then come and watch his son train like all the other dads. And we, we'd just have games at the end. And no one, it wasn't like anyone had academy kit. You just, you wore a kit you had in the house. So I had an, I had an, an Everton kit and a Scotland kit because of a Graeme Sharp. Uh, <laughs> so whenever I went training, I'd have a the Everton kit and the Scotland kit and I played him up front in these little five-a-side games getting goals so we, that's where the nickname came from Sharpie So you were wearing an Everton kit to Liverpool School of Excellence and it, is that not frown? Are they alright with that? <laughs> well they had to be I was that good <laughs> <laughs> But I, I didn't have a Liverpool kit there was no way I was getting one of them when I was a kid so uh, you just wore what kit you had you know, it wasn't, as I said, it wasn't like a, a case of like kids getting training kit like they do now and, you know, everyone looking the same. It was, you turned up and then you threw bibs on, you know, for, mm. uh, you know, the game at the end or wherever it may be. So, yeah, they were the only, uh, the kits I had at the time. Who did, um like, the, your kind of peers like Michael Owen and Stephen Gerrard and Steve McManaman, who were they? Did they all support Liverpool or were they Everton? Steve McManaman was Everton. Michael Owen was, was Everton. I don't think Michael was a massive sort of Everton fan in that, you know, he, he lived in Chester, he didn't go to the games. Yeah. I think Stevie Mack went to the games. I think Robbie did. I think, well, I mean, you've got to remember, Michael's dad played for Everton. Yeah. Michael played yeah. one game for Everton. So, you know, that was obviously a big thing for him when he was a kid in the schoolyard. But, no, Stevie Gerrard, there's a famous picture of him in an Everton kit with a, I think it's 1987, Everton won the league. And there's, they've got the league championship and the charity shield and, you know, fans must be able to go in and get pictures and his uncle took him and put an Everton kit on him. So that goes all over social media <laughs> all the time. But no, Stevie was a, he was a Liverpool fan, Stevie. And to wind the clock forward a little bit, so 92, you're identified as one of Britain's greatest young talents and you get taken to the FA School of Excellence, Lillishaw. You describe it as two of the best years of your life. But is it right that Liverpool didn't want you to go? No, they didn't. They put us in for the trials and every club would put the best two or three players in. So I went with David Thompson, you know, had a, had a good career and another lad, Jamie Cassidy. And me and Jamie Cassidy got through to, you know, the last 16, we, we, we made it, if you like. And it was, a, it was a massive buzz, really. Each time you get through, you get a letter sent home, right, you're invited to the next trial. 
Frank Lampard was at the trials the first time I saw Frank. He didn't uh, quite make it, but you just you seen all these different faces because what you got to remember at that age, you know you're a good player, but you've never played against anyone from London or Birmingham or you know the, the North East. You've only got Merseyside really to judge it. And uh, I always remember a school teacher saying that to me when I was ten or eleven, and they were trying to sort of maybe put me in my place, saying, you know, you don't know what other players are like. You know, you're only good in the school or something like that. And it always stuck with me. I thought you. Cheeky bastards, you know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, so getting into the list, Sean, I thought about that school, we won't name names, uh, I thought about that school teacher a little bit, but it was brilliant getting in and I absolutely loved it. But Steve Iway got me in and went to, uh, I mean, it was, a, it was a big thing for me at the time. He said, I, I think you're the best player in the country uh, for your age. And he said, I want to I wanna coach the best player in the country for the next two years. He said, and I think I'm the best coach. And you know what? He probably was. But there was a massive difference then between the coaching we were getting at Lillyshaw and Liverpool. Not in terms of standard, but academies then or School of Excellence, you, you only went twice a week. It was like a Tuesday and a Thursday night. Whereas at Lillyshaw, you were training every day. Yeah, you were living the there. Yeah, and, and with the best players in the country, though, that's always the biggest thing for me. I always, when people talk about what academies a kid should go to, I always think go to the best one you possibly can. Every time you go, you, you're possibly going to be playing with better players. And, and, and it's, not that it, listen, it's not right for everyone, but more often than not, I think the best training with the best brings the best out of each other. And, and that was the biggest thing for me with going to, uh, to Lillyshaw. But I was devastated when they, uh, they stopped it. But it was, I mean, it, can you imagine 32 lads living together <laughs> in a dorm? Who were, the, who were the other guys that kind of made, was there other names that were as big as you? Michael Owen was there at the same time, right? No, he was, so what you'd do is you'd have, you'd be, you'd come and you'd be the juniors in your first mm-hmm. year and there'd be a group above you, the seniors, and then obviously you'd become the seniors and juniors would come underneath you. So Mike, as I left, Michael Ohm was coming in, but uh-huh. Michael, you got remember is Michael's from Chester and he didn't know me at that time. I, I didn't meet Michael until I was probably 17. Wow. And even though we'd been at Liverpool together or he'd been at Liverpool a few years younger, but he said he got to Lillyshaw and the first time they all sat down, the principal of the school said, right, you know, these are the rules and regulations. And he said one more thing. He said, we are not having another Jamie Carragher in this school. <laughs> <laughs> Were you naughty? <laughs> oh, school was not my air force. <laughs> it was, uh, I mean, I was just obsessed with football. I'm going to a football school in my end. I'm not going to school. I'm going to a football school. So, School went right out the window. I, got, I think I got launched out of the school on the last day. We're getting a little bit of trouble. And uh, at Lillyshaw, your last ever day, you go back and, and it's called Caps Day because you, you play for England in the two years. And, and Jimmy Hill gave us our caps. And uh, the principal said, don't come back. We've had enough of your behaviour and, and this type of stuff. I was doing all right on the pitch. The coach loved me. But uh, <laughs> my dad said, just get on the train, go back, and when you get there, you'll have to give you a cap. You know, he's not going to turn you away. So I, I just, you know, just get on the train and go. So I, I just jumped on the train and went uh, with the other lads from Liverpool, Jamie Cassidy. We got there with all the other lads, and it was not even say then really too much. But, uh, but no, towards the end, you, you obviously get ready for your exams, and we we just we'd been to the European Championships, and they were in Ireland. We should we should have won it. We beat the winners of the tournament. We beat in the first game one 0 and I was actually centre forward in this game, and Emil Heskey's on the bench as the, as the, as the backup striker. We had uh, we had Richard Wright in goal, 
and uh, he had a decent career. I think he's still going. Is he? Is he? Is he still hanging on at Man City for them medals? Yeah. Is he? Even though he played, he's never played. <laughs> and uh, and we got knocked out of that. And there was a massive blow for. We got knocked out in the quarters on penalties, and it was just like that's the end for me. I'm done. But I still had my exams, and uh, I just oh, just didn't do well in the exams. Wasn't interested uh, really. So that was Michael Owen's first recollection, really. But other good <laughs> players were there. Jody Morris was underneath me. Yeah. Wow. So I get on well with him. He's obviously involved with Chelsea now. The year above us never really did anything. Nothing much. Any of the play- in our group we had Gavin McCann yeah. and Stephen Clements. We were all roommates, so they had decent Premier League careers. So they they did okay. Yeah. Can you tell at that stage who's going to make it? No, I don't think any. I didn't stand out in that group. Uh, I think at that age, what you got to remember is there's look physically people are a lot different at 16. I mean, I was the smallest in the group. So there's really? a, a sort of yeah, I, there's a sort of famous picture that the, the physio took, and a lot of it then was was new in terms of sports science, biomechanics, size of, of players at certain ages, and the biggest lad in the group was a lad called Marlon Brooms who played lower league uh, football. Mm. He's the England captain at that time and our best player, centre back, and I was the smallest in the group and I was a centre forward and we both have to uh, everyone had to sort of get in pictures with the just your jock strap so you could actually see your, your physical frame and they put me and Marlon together uh, basically the biggest and the, and the smallest and uh, the, the physio now still uses that as, a, as an example of not getting too carried away about where footballers are at yeah. 15, 16, 17 about, and he basically says humans are playing centre-back for England in the World Cup or something like that you know, yeah. one's, one's a skinny centre-forward <laughs> and one's a, a six-foot-two who's a centre-back at that age. So it just shows you how you can you can go from different levels. But no, I don't think anyone would have said I would have... You know, it was obviously a good player. Everyone's yeah. a good player there. But there was no standout in our group, to be honest. I mean, Marlon was possibly the best player, but he, he was a big lad. But there was no, like, wow, he's a superstar that maybe when Michael Owen was there, if you like. And there was none the year above either. I mean, the one who did really stand out the year below us was Michael Branch. If you remember oh, yeah, him, he made a few games, played a few games for Everton. When he, I mean, he was lightning quick. He was a big lad as well, but he was like, you thought, oh, he's definitely going to you know, play football. But you never know how someone's going to take to it when they get to the, you know, the Premier League or the first team of someone's you know, team. Because I remember before Michael Owen got in the Liverpool team, I even remember having heard about him being the kind of mm. this amazing hope. Even him, you thought this could go either way, or was he he nailed on? No, as I said, I didn't see him till he basically played in our youth cup game against Man United. So we we go back to Liverpool. Michael's Stevie's age group, where they're like two years behind us, and we're in the youth cup, and we get Man United in the draw, and we we've used you know decent centre forwards, just local lads. But Steve Iwe went, that's not enough against Man United. He said, I'm going to get this lad. He's still at school. I'm like, I hadn't really heard too much of him. Michael mm. Owen, he scored a hat-trick against Man United in the Youth Cup. <laughs> and it's like, who is this kid? And <laughs> it was like, oh my God, he is like shit off a shovel. I mean, he was so quick. And But I've never seen, I mean, I, I mean, that Liverpool youth team was a tasty team in terms of physicality. I mean, I mean, some of the tackles we did and got away with, but then Michael turned up and it was like, oh my God. I mean, we were all from like the back streets of Liverpool and this kid from Chester's come in, you should have seen the tackles he was doing. It was like, he was just topping people all over the pit. And I was like, oh my God. 
It was, and, and if you remember when he first got on the Liverpool team, he was like that. Remember that tackle he done on Schmeichel, and he put he put a he, he done a tackle against Everton, I think, on David Weir. Oh, Mr. God, I've never seen nothing like it. And I think one of his agents must have said, "Listen, you've got an image, you've got to you play up to. You, you yeah. can't be doing this." And he just stopped tackling. Yeah. He stopped tackling. You know, he didn't do any of them bad tackles. But that was the first time I ever saw him. It was like, oh my God! It, it was almost like he was he was the only player I think I can ever say it was a guarantee. To play. There's other teams where you think he'll play for the first team, but then you think, well, we wonder how he does. David Thompson was a perfect example. Mm. David Tom, me and David Thompson were sort of level pegging all the way through. And I, I, I got in the first team and it happened for me. It didn't happen for him, but you sort of scratch your head. Why? Just for whatever reason, it didn't. But And even with Stevie Gerrard, how good he was, you knew he'd play for the first team at 15 or 16 because you sort of know the level you've got to be at a certain age. You think, he'll get his chance. He'll, he'll make a debut. But then, Anything can happen, you know, at that yeah. age. Uh, really. But Michael was the one where you knew he was like, he was going to be a superstar. Into 96, so you win the FA Youth Cup, but you're getting into the first team of Liverpool now. And there's a, a moment where I thought in the book, like you're really transitioning from fan to player. And you say you're in the squad away to Middlesbrough. Half time you go to warm up and you let your dad know in the crowd that Everton are 2 0 up. And yeah. your dad said, after, <laughs> you can't do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, I. I, I, I I was just that passionate as fo- about football then as I am now, and I was the same. And it was difficult to go from being, uh, stop being an Everton fan, where it's the first thing as any football fan will know. It's the first thing on your mind when you wake up in the morning, probably the last thing you think about when you go to bed. How they got on, who they buy, who they sell, and who they play. You know, I was like that as a player. I'm like that now uh, as a pundit, but I couldn't. Ch- and it was that game, that was Alan Shearer's first game. For Newcastle as the fifteen million pound guy, and uh, Everton beat them two 0 and it was two 0 at half time. So yeah, I, my dad was on the front row of almost the second tier, and uh, I was just doing. The, I was thinking, oh, that's two 0 against Sheeran in Newcastle. Fucking sub for Liverpool. You're like, fuck <laughs> it. No. But I, I had a couple of things like that. It wasn't like an easy like, right, that's it. I because and people may even like maybe Liverpool fans may think, oh, that that's wrong or that's out of order, but. I always say, well, imagine how you'd feel if you were playing forever. Now, could you just turn that tap off where, like, Liverpool's being your life? And you, you couldn't. You couldn't. Yeah. And it was sort of a natural progression. But there was one way. I was coming home from the reserves. And uh, Everton were playing Stockport in the FA Cup. So, Liverpool reserves. Oh, the reserve games or the Pontons League always kicked off at 7 o'clock. So, you'd listen to a game on the way back. And Everton were playing Stockport in the Cup. And Stockport scored. And uh, all the sort of coach went up. And then Everton equalised, and I went, get in, like that. And Ronnie went, I'm like, who the fucking hell's that? <laughs> so when did that childhood love for Everton, did it just fade over time? Do you still have an affection for Everton? Where do you stand with them now? Uh, not really, because it gets quite uh, nasty now on social media, with fans and different things. And, and in some ways, when nothing's going on and I'm just nice and peaceful, I think, I wouldn't mind it. I hope they do all right. I, I like Ancelotti, who only lives around the corner. And yeah. uh, I get on with him quite well. And I think, oh, I hope they do well for him. And, I, you know, the fans and that. But then something happens like the derby, the 2-2 game. You had the pick for the Van Dyke stuff. And then you had the, the VAR with the goal. And it's all going off on social media. And I'm thinking, I hope they get fucked next week. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think definitely when I first got into the Liverpool team, it come, it was more of an indifference, really. Where it, you know, and I think now I'd, I'd say it's if, if Everton lose, 
I wouldn't say it's a. It certainly brings a right smile to me face, shall I say? Yeah. <laughs> what about your dad? Is your dad still a hardcore Everton fan, or has he moved to the red side now? No, massive Liverpool fan, and it's yeah. tough for him because I mean he went to Everton a lot longer than me, and he went home and away for years. You're going back to sort of when they won the title in 1970, really, and uh, you know the mates who he went up and down the country, as I said. So it's difficult for him, but I mean. His answer is, is right. You know, your, your son's more important than anyone. So you support your son. Your son was Liverpool, and it wasn't like I just played for Liverpool for like two or three years, and then I had a career with four or five clubs. It was like Liverpool was my life. It was our lives. You know, my dad went home and away in Europe. Uh, the things we went through, uh, you know, as a family, and what Liverpool done for us as a family. So you know, my me, me son's a big, uh, a big red. He goes home and away as, as well. My dad's the same. My brothers, uh, I'd say my brothers are still probably more Everton. Yeah, really, yeah. Uh, you know, my brothers used to still go to the Everton game now and again when I was still playing for uh, for Liverpool. And if Everton were in a big game, they'd go there or you know, a cup final or something. So they they'd go along yet. So uh, they're probably split. But the rest of my family, it, it was a big Everton family. So no one else really moved over when I played for Liverpool type yeah. of thing. So it was a uh, there was a big divide. Yes. If, was there ever a big moment where your dad had to sit in the away end at Goodison for the first time? No, 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 that would not be a, that would never have happened though, I mean, uh, certainly our situation with, with tickets, he was always fortunate, but yeah, I'll tell you, a, a, a true story, uh, when my dad went to, the big rivals are obviously United and Everton, and uh, he went to Old Trafford one day, and he just said it was that bad be between the fans, and he said, I got that wound up, he said, I said something to one of their fans, you know, like, you know, I, he said, and I couldn't believe I said it. So he didn't tell me what it was, to be honest. He said, and I just thought, you know what, if football gets me that bad. So he never went to Old Trafford after that. Oh, he always wow. went to Goodison. Yeah. yeah. It can get that sort of like really sort of nasty now. And it's a little bit yeah. like that with Everton and Liverpool, really. And it, it, it's a bit it's a bit sad. I always think it's like, is it, you know, because I can, I can almost bridge that divide because I was an Everton supporter and Liverpool. So I can almost see it from both sides of, you know, Everton are always that team who almost Liverpool laugh at. They, they always want Liverpool to lose because they've got nothing not really to look forward to themselves too often. Uh, and I just wish it was, there was something that we could all do when it wasn't the way it is. But I think Sky, Sky Sports News, social media, football now is just in your face constantly. And I think that's probably a, a big, or certainly yeah. reason why so much tribalism now in football. Because it felt in the 80s like, the the Liverpool Everton rivalry was not in the same way as other cities in the sense it felt like there was such a civic pride in Liverpool certainly at that time it was you know politically as well it was kind of cut off from the rest of the country that it felt almost the teams were slightly bonded together is that fair yeah and that's when I obviously came into football I think you're right I think what was going on politically was was a big part of it and I think the first one was the eighty four Cup final League Cup final. And then you, you, you basically, for the next two or three years, uh, the two teams dominated English football. Really. I think it was something for the city to be proud of. I think the 84 one was the first one. And it was almost like there wasn't really, there was always a rivalry, but I think everyone knew Liverpool were the team and Everton had got to a cup final. It was like, I think Everton in that final, even though they feel hard done by, by a decision from Alan Robinson, who was the, the referee for the handball by uh, Alan Hansen, they lost the replay with a Graeme Sunesco at Main Road, but 
I think there was this feeling of one we're in the final and almost pleased to be there, possibly in yeah. some ways. Whereas then you had 85 and then you had the 86 final. Now, to me, that felt different. That was like, that was a massive blow for, for Everton. Yeah. I always remember coming out the ground after the game and we, we obviously didn't watch Liverpool lift the cup. And uh, I come out with my dad and people are trying to get it. And I was a Liverpool fan and my dad knew and he ran past us. Everyone's trying to get trains or coaches. And he went, yeah, we've done the double or something like that. And I think if my dad could have got his hands on him, he'd have killed him. <laughs> he just said, fuck off. And, and I thought, I just seen it in his face. It was that like, this was not like we're happy to be here. This is like, oh, God, <laughs> this has hurt. Uh, I mean, that's in, in some ways I say that now, I'd love Ancelotti to get Everton sort of back to that. And Liverpool, where they are now, if you like, mm. uh, because to grow up at that time, as a kid, it was just like, you didn't know anything. Liverpool and Everton dominated the 80s, really. Uh, yeah. You think of all the titles Liverpool won, and then what Everton won. And it was uh, it was an unbelievable time. And finishing, obviously, in the 89 Cup final, the last Cup final of the, the 80s, with uh, you know another Liverpool win, unfortunately for me at that time again. <laughs> but the rivalry, sort of, I, I felt in 86 and 87, it was like, it was that team was going to stop you winning the league or the FA Cup. That's the way it felt at that time. We, you always end on the same question, Chris. Yes. One final question for you. Now, usually we say to people, would you go back to the 1st of January 1990 and do it all again? But for you, I'm going to let you go back to the 24th of April 1985, uh, the second leg of that Cup Winners' Cup. If I, you had the opportunity to go back and do it all again, Jamie, would you? Oh, yes, of course. And the reason why I'd love to go back and do it all again is because... I don't think I appreciated it enough because I was only seven and it was my first season in football and I'm like, this is normal. <laughs> and going to Wembley for the cup final, Everton got to three cup finals, 84, 85, 86. It was like, it was like going to Alton Towers with the school. You know, it was like something you did at the end of every year. You went to Wembley, <laughs> you know, it's just what you did. And, uh, and that's why I would love to go back to uh, that night and savour it a little bit more, maybe get a little bit more memories from it and appreciate how big it was at the time because it wasn't going to come too often. Thank you. That's genuinely, um, I'm hoping with the first interview you've ever done that hasn't mentioned Istanbul. So <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that was Jamie Carragher and his book, The Greatest Games, his selection of the 11 greatest games he's kind of lived through. Uh, that book is out now. And honestly, it's really, really good. I, I read the book. To, I've got halfway through it to research the interview and I will be going back to complete the rest of it. It is really, really good. We'll be back next week uh, when Bob Mills will be talking about Leighton Orient in the 90s. One of your favourite episodes ever, Chris? Yeah, mate, just bring your dinner. Until then, Robbie Slater. See you later. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. 
Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side by side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.